And thank you so much. Sure. And I want to send well wishes from my husband, Taylor, <laughs> who says he's sorry to see you retire from the office. And um, so, as am I. But we'll, we can talk about that some. Sure we can. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Today, I'm really excited to bring to you a longtime public servant, a friend, and our current senator in Senate District 31, Senator Kel Seliger. Kel, thanks for being on here today. Thank you very much for having me. Well, would you tell the folks who are listening just some of your history in public service? Because I can say that it, my knowledge of Kell's public service goes back to high school in Border, Texas, when he served as, I believe, president of the senior class, right? President of the student council. President of the student council. Okay. I can't remember the designations back then. So that, that was my earliest memories of Kell. Just like most people that you and I know, uh, what I do now has very much to do with where I grew up, which is in Borger. Borger Public Schools, uh, my, my parents who nobody, I don't, I know very few people who deserve the parents that I had who were very loving and demonstrative. And at the same time, they were strict. And, and I, I am today what I grew up being in Borger. And for the most part, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm grateful for that. My wife is less grateful about some of my attributes, but that's, <laughs> that's her issue. Well, going back to Borger, uh, our folks were friends, and, sure. and uh, you know, I remember going to your mom's store. Um, and my mom and your mom were friends longer because my dad passed away, and then uh, your uh, your wife's parents were friends with my husband's parents down in Missouri City. So right. there's a lot of connection. We go way there. back. <laughs> so okay, so high school, then then what? I. Was in business. I was fortunate enough to be in business. My brother and I operated Lake Steel, located here in Amarillo, and we had a place in Dallas for 35 years. And it's it's funny now, having been in a family business, to watch the uh, the series that's on HBO Plus or something now called Succession about a genuinely pathological family in a much, much bigger business. And it's interesting to watch the things that go on in that family and the things that my family, primarily my father, did differently, who did a good job of, of running a family business. Uh, the toughest job that you will that a person can ever have in a lot of respects is working for a father or probably a mother who's very, very exacting and demanding and, uh, and should be when you run a small business. So I did that, and, and in um, uh, 1989... A friend of mine called who was on the Emerald City Council, was commissioned then, called and said he wasn't going to run and thought I ought to run. And uh, my wife and I hadn't been married very long at that point. And uh, and, uh, she was pregnant with our first child, and she said, you know, this is something that you're going to do at some point. Might as well do it for a perfectly open seat. And so I ran in 89. There were six or seven people in the race. I was in a runoff. And, um, and I was elected to the city council. And then in 1991, I had filed to run again for my seat and mayor Keith Adams called and said he was uh, not going to run for reelection 
and he intended to endorse me on the following Tuesday if I would run, which is one of the most generous things I've seen in politics. I didn't even know he liked me. And uh, which was interesting. And so I, I got to serve eight years as mayor of Amarillo. And I tell people all this time what a great experience it is to serve as mayor of a city that is progressive and it wants to grow. And people think Amarillo progressive, really? Yeah. Because people kind of understand what our future problems are going to be when it comes to acquisition of water rights, when it comes to the necessity of what was then probably the most active and effective economic development program in in the state of Texas. But the people of Amarillo bought into it. And then in uh, I, I left office in 2001 at City Hall. I'd done what I could do, and I, I had the opportunity to be succeeded by Trent Sizemore, who I knew would be a great mayor and was. And uh, then when President Bush made Teal Bivens the ambassador to Sweden, my wife and I talked about it and talked about it, and she said, you've wanted to do things with public policy, and this is your chance. So once again, there were seven people in the race. I set a record in the state of Texas for the most races run in the shortest period of time, three races in 48 days, and and prevailed there. And one of the things that I did that I'm happiest about having doing and that was the most rewarding, it was 26 counties then. It is now 37 counties that that, that I represent, and in the next, the next state senator is going to represent 45 counties. I think it's 45. As, and I traveled to all these counties, and and everybody in every city county I've ever represented has had opportunities to look at me right in the eye and uh, hurt my feelings if they can or give me some constructive criticism, which they often do. And I went to all the superintendents and said, I want to make sure you understand that the single most important thing the, city, the, the, the state does is – public education. I make no pretense, and I don't want you to think that I think I'm an expert on public education. What can I do to help? You got to run your school district, which is really, which people in legislature don't believe that now. You got to run your school district. Where can I help do something about testing? And so in 2005, uh, I introduced the first measure, which was actually an amendment bill to do away with tax test. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) it was horrible. The STAR test is much better. The STAR test has improved. We need to make sure that we distill the testing requirement down to its essentials, which are really very simple. And um, and we eventually did away with it because I was going to introduce a bill to do away with it anyway, and the chairman said somebody ought to do this who knows what they're doing. I owe a great deal to that chairman, Florence Shapiro of Plano, who said if you're going to come if you're going to pass, if you're going to introduce bills that have to do with public education, and you're going to participate, you're going to come to the hearings whether you're on the committee or not. And so I started going to education committee hearings and learned a tremendous amount. And and that's mostly what I've been doing for 18 years are things with public education. I was the chairman of the committee on higher education, which is one of the best jobs that you can possibly have because higher education is always and must be. It's innovative. It's disruptive in a good way, and it's what paves the, the, the path to the future in all states and societies, really. 
Well, as a regent at Amarillo College, I thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, in that respect, in some respect, it's easy because it is almost a requirement that leaders in higher education must be innovative and they must be visionary and they must be dedicated because that's the only way you improve edu- institutions of higher learning. And so you work with some of the finest people in, in education, the finest people in thought development, if you will, anywhere, in places where you wouldn't necessarily expect it. The late president of University of Texas, El Paso, Diana Natalicio, absolute visionary, one of the great leaders in, in, in American education and um, uh, the same thing is true of of Donna Ferrier at University. Uh, I guess it's there. She's at A and M, San Antonio. A great leader, absolutely wonderful leader. Uh, the late Dr. Patillo of of Stephen F. Austin, which people don't really think about, absolute treasure. And then you have the people who are really going places and taking their institution places. Uh, uh, John Sharp has, has been a great chancellor at Texas A&M. Bill Powers was absolute marvel at the University of Texas. He's been followed now by Jay Hartzell, who I think is going to be one of the best of, of all time. Um, uh, Renew Couture at University of Houston is taking that from being what it was essentially a local university who's appealed mostly to kids who lived in Harris County to uh, – an institution of national importance that's going to do absolutely nothing but get better. My friend Bob Duncan did so many good things at Texas Tech, and and he was followed there by by Ted Mitchell, who's a great chancellor. Texas Tech does nothing but improve. Maybe not in the football program, <laughs> but but he and 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 Lawrence Skuvenak, who's taught at Tech for thirty years and is a wonderful human being as well as being a great academic are making a huge difference at, at, at Tech. West Texas A&M, people today who went to, to West Texas A&M 20 years ago marvel at what that university has become and, and what it's meaning to the lives of the students, becoming more and more of a destination university for kids, primarily all around the state of Texas. And, and Walter Wendler has, has really been a tremendous influence. And you've mentioned so many of the four-year institutions. And, of course, I have special interest in community college. And 75% of the students who actually achieve a baccalaureate degree have attended community colleges. So those are so important to our state. And they're such a wonderful entry point for so many students. We could not educate the, the populace of the state of Texas without community colleges. We just could not do it because of the average income level of the kids that are getting out of high school, because of the size of our population, where we're located as a border state. And I certainly wasn't leaving out community colleges. What gets the attention from outside the state tend to be the, 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 the universities. As you say, 75% of the kids start in community college. A lot of them, that's all the college they're going to get. And, and it doesn't matter what the reason is. It's all the college they're going to get but it is level of higher earning that everyone needs, particularly in an economy and a society that's getting more technical and is requiring a higher level of skills than just your high school diploma. 
and uh, uh, we've got to do some refinements in higher education funding the way we do it. We use formulas that are occasionally, uh, they, it gets very complex, and they've been based upon attendance. And, and for community colleges, the funding is largely based upon how many hours a day you have a student sitting in a seat. And that was a great 1960s model. Here we are in the 21st century, and a lot of kids are learning remotely and learning online. And, and you can sit in Amarillo College and take courses that are taught at Caltech or Harvard or Michigan, if you like, or University of Texas or Rice. That access is tremendously important. So what you're getting is no longer a limited or local education. You cannot trade. You cannot replace the experience of going to college. But at the end of the day, we're talking about the body of knowledge that the student is exposed to and what they do with it. And, uh, and, and Walter Wendler at West Texas A&M is traveling all over to every high school in the panhandle. And here's what he's telling people. And I know this word for word. If you have to borrow money to go to West Texas A&M, don't come. And West Texas A&M is cheap compared to University of Texas or Texas A&M and certainly University of Texas Dallas. It may not be quite as cheap, inexpensive as University of Texas Permian Basin or Sol Ross, but it's darn sure inexpensive. And what, what Dr. Wendler is telling people, go to your community college first, get your associate's degree, then come to West Texas A&M. You will graduate with a Texas A&M quality bachelor's degree for a fraction of the cost. That formula is setting the pace for, for the United States in terms of quality and affordability. Does that mean we don't have th- ways to go both in quality and affordability? <laughs> sure we do. Um, the things that, that go on, and I represent Frank Phillips and Clarendon and Midland College and Odessa College. I think it says something that the money that was donated this year uh, to Odessa College and Amarillo College, millions and millions of dollars because we're seeing people like the Gates Foundation and people like that. Look at the quality that exists in all levels. It's easy for Harvard to raise money. It's easy for the University of Texas to raise money. Money's tougher to come by for both West Texas A&M and, and Amarillo College, but people are seeing that kind of quality and the influence they can have. I venture to say that what was the dollar figure at Amarillo College? Was it fifteen million? Fifteen million from McKenzie Scott. Yes, fifteen million dollars from McKenzie Scott. That dollar for dollar, that money will probably have more impact on the institution and on the lives of the students than the same fifteen million dollars would have at the University of Texas. Not that it would not have value, but it's going to make more of a difference. Huge difference. Huge difference. Well, and you know our student population, we have high poverty rates and many first-gen students, many more than the, than the four, than the, at least the flagship four years have. So that's going to help so many more of our kids get out of poverty. One of the things that I like doing is talking to groups of students, and I talk to a lot of them, and I say, how many students here are the first generation of their family to ever go to college? And increasingly, more and more hands go up. Those hands are always accompanied by, a, by, by smiles and things that people 
those young people realize that they're really doing something of importance. The things that happen of educational importance in the lives of students in colleges today are things that are going to be important to the state of Texas. Those people are going to go to college and they're going to get out and they're, they're going to, to make big impacts. And we were, I, I was at a ceremony this weekend at the University of Texas for some of their distinguished alumni, alumni who, who one of the, the first black women to go to University of Texas Law School, who became one of the principals at the FDIC, and, and people who have that kind of impact, uh, a, an individual, first generation of his family to go to college from a very poor family, is an absolutely world-renowned architect and designed the 9-11 memorial in New York City in the Symphony Hall in Oslo, Norway, and, and is, is worldwide, all over the world. And you realize the impact that, that that has in in when a young person is the first generation in their family to go to college, that college education as a rule becomes a family value. You and I come from families, and and, and Taylor comes from a family where we knew going in that we were going to go to college. That's what our parents always talked about. It just is sure is we were going to get up and get dressed in the morning. We were going to go to college. But I'm still a first gen. Yeah. You know, but but my parents didn't go to, you know, college at, th- at their ages. You didn't have to. No, you so. you didn't have to, but t- today you do. And and you realize how valuable that is and but there are still families where if the parents didn't go to college and their kids can get a good job, then They'll just be okay. Okay is not good enough. That is, that sort of thing is is affected by the economy that exists in Texas today, particularly in the energy sectors. I represent the Permian Basin. If you can get a a, a commercial driver's license and pass a drug test, you can probably get a job driving a truck for over $100,000 a year. That's a good job, and people ought to aspire to that job, and they ought to get that job. But on the other end... At the end of your truck driving career, where will you be? And that education is important. Working in the oil field, you make a tremendous amount of money. But what happens you get in your 50s and 60s, and it is hard, hard work. And it just, here's what an education does, college education does. It's not magic for everybody. Please keep in mind that Bill Gates didn't complete his college education. It increases your options and choices as you get older. If it does nothing else, you have more options with an education. Well, on behalf of the entire state of Texas, K-12 and higher ed institutions, I'll just take that on right now and say (laughs) thank you for support there and thank you for understanding how important it is and Again, I'll go back to our teacher, Mrs. Wiles, and, you know, folks at Borger High School helping instill those values as well as as our families that we were both fortunate to have great families. But not everybody in the legislature is supportive of public ed. And you have been known to be maybe the swing vote on many issues that really 
we're either going to hurt public ed or sidetrack us into some of the social issues that really not sure the state legislature needs to be involved in personally. But so you were willing to stand up uh, to some of your your folks and your leadership and say, no, this isn't good. Yeah. And, and paid a high price for it. And I accept that. That's that's when when decisions are tough, when there are implications, sometimes negative. That's when you know that the choices made are important. And and the issue first came up is is regards private education. I think people have a right to educate their children any way they want. Um, I, I, I and that's fine. I had I in fact I had a, a a young lady worked in my office who was homeschooled before she went to college. Her parents did a great job, but we have both a constitutional and moral obligation to provide a public education to every student in this state. It's 5.8 million kids. And, and, and obviously it takes really hard work to do it because not all these kids really want to learn. They're going to school because their children made them go to school. Their Their parents parents made them go to school. And, And some of them aren't real motivated. And then some of them have educational problems that make school even tougher than it was to begin with. And, and for those of us, who were who were mathematically challenged? School was tough. Add a learning disability, and it gets a lot tougher. Or a physical disability. The simple fact is, and this sounds kind of harsh, if every private school in Texas went away tomorrow, we'd still educate our kids. Uh, but we can't let the public schools go away. And so, um, the private school movement started with religious schools. People who wanted to. Um, educate their kids with religious underpinnings, their religious values, which they have a right to do. I'm one of those people who believe in the separation of church and state. I don't believe the state uh, should pay for religious education or indoctrination or anything like that. That is a family issue. You do it in your family. I do it in mine. Everybody should. It's not up to the public schools. And, And that's increasingly true as it becomes more diverse. And um, so there was a voucher bill. And and if you take a school district, it may not be true of Amarillo Independent School District, but I'll bet you it's true, uh, certainly true of Bushland and a lot of schools. If you took 10% of their school, of their, of their enrollment, and you put them in homeschool or private school, it would cost the school district, it would cost the taxpayers not one nickel less not one teacher less. So what are we doing? And so uh, we, we have some tremendous problems in, in public schools. I talked to a teacher who uh, was from the Dallas area and said discipline is increasing a problem in public schools and the ability to enforce the rules is getting tougher and tougher. It's not going to get any easier, but we have to do it. That's why we have resource officers in so many schools and things like that, because we have disciplinary problems, but it is still our obligation to those young people. And so I voted against a voucher bill. There was an absolutely terrible bill, and here's what it did. And and I use the example, and it I, I hope it doesn't sound like I have some sort of religious bias. Being a member of a religious minority, I would submit to you that I don't. But at the time, there were, I think, 18, dozen and a half 
uh, Islamic schools in Harris County. To the best of my knowledge, they do a perfectly good job. And if those if those Muslim parents choose to educate their children that way, absolutely they should do it. And and the question that I asked on the floor of the Senate was that let's say one of those schools decided they wanted their curriculum to be one that we would consider more radically Muslim, anti-Bible, anti-American, things like that. Were we willing to provide public funding for that sort of education? The answer must be no. And so the, the author of the bill said, well, we'll just put it in this law that they can't teach radical Islam in schools. And then up pops our beloved First Amendment that says you can't do that. You can't keep them from teaching things like that. That's why we don't put public money into religious indoctrination. Some other issues that you stood up against in the Senate. Um, anything come to mind, some of the challenges you've faced or just taken stands on or just just the general? Yeah, the ridiculous Twitter bill from, from this last session. First of all, we passed too many laws in Texas. And for a Republican, that is a horrible situation. Uh, people invoke the name of Ronald Reagan right now. Ronald Reagan would hate us. And and Ronald Reagan would would tell us that we're all acting as is is both dictators and 1980s Democrats because we are. Just because Donald Trump gets thrown off of Twitter, I don't know where this bill started. We have to have an anti-Twitter bill. It was anti-business, and it was the absolute perfect example of big government. I personally don't think Donald Trump should have been thrown off Twitter personally, permanently. Uh, a little probation, not a bad idea. So we passed a bill that says it's legal to throw somebody off of Twitter because it has become the new town square. Well, that is ridiculous. Town square implicates general and public neighborhood ownership. Twitter is a private company that's owned by its stockholders, and they can do basically what they want as long as they obey other laws. And if you or I write a letter to the Emerald Globe News and they don't print it, it is not censorship. It's a private company that can make their own editorial decisions. I thought it was big government. I thought it was a terrible bill. Um, and, and we passed another bill. And this one, people are listening to this podcast or go, well, now... <laughs> Annette's dealing in pure fantasy. I wish you were. <laughs> the state of Texas currently has 1,200 feet in a, in a good secure building for the Texas State Gold Bullion Depository. The only complication there is, is the state of Texas has no gold bullion with no plans to get any. And so what we did to remedy that situation is we took $20 million out of the Texas budget and bought the whole 40,000-square-foot building that is now the Texas Gold Bullion Depository, and we still have no gold bullion. And I think it's corrupted, and I think it is a waste of money. And make no mistake, it's Republicans wasting the money. And it's an embarrassment, and I think I might have been the only Republican to vote against it. I think uh, Senator Miles from Houston voted against it, and I voted against it. I think it's a travesty and an embarrassment. 
And then I asked the governor to veto it. It didn't get vetoed. So you've had some um, pretty public run-ins with the lieutenant governor. And the power power of the lieutenant governor is created by the Senate through its own rules. Correct. And why hasn't the Senate modified those powers or... Maybe it's just you're the only one who's had the biggest challenge. So. Over the years, the 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 Senate has simply abdicated all of its powers to the lieutenant governor. Doesn't have them by constitution. And the ability to name uh, committees and the ability to determine which legislation goes to the floor. And it used to be when I first went in the Senate, if you had – we, we had these cards that everybody's names. And if you had 21 or more check marks, your bill came to the floor, whether the lieutenant governor liked it or not. It was the will of the Senate. That number is now 18, but you have to have the approval of the lieutenant governor for the bill to come to the Senate. And I've had him tell me with a sheet that had 23 check marks on it that he didn't like the bill, wasn't coming to the floor. The, the Senate is now run absolutely and completely by the lieutenant governor, not by the Senate who are supposed to do it. The, the, the lieutenant governor determines who sits at our media table and gave a seat to Empower Texans, which is not a media outlet, and and denied um, not the Texas Tribune, but the Quorum Report at a seat. Nobody likes Quorum Report because they print critical stuff about all of us, but they, they're very even-handed. They don't like anybody. And, and that is a power that's supposed to rest with the Senate. And so if you vote against something that the lieutenant governor wants, then you get punished. And there are three of us who've suffered that punishment. And after I voted no against um, uh, the, the school voucher bill, I voted no against a, a revenue cap bill on local property taxes. And uh, I was, I was, I lost my chairmanship. I lost my seat on higher education and public education. And I lost my seat on the finance committee, which was an absolute insult to the people of the Texas panhandle. In a way, it's not Dan Patrick's fault. He has used the power that we have given him. And we did it in error. Uh, It is the greatest example of vindictiveness that I personally have, have seen. And you and I both met a lot of hateful, vindictive people in our lives. Everybody has. Uh, but this is this is is the most. And so we have entered an era of authoritarianism, both in the state of Texas and nationally, where people in leadership positions kind of morph those positions into dictatorial positions. A lot of the things that Greg Abbott, who who I thought would be a great governor. It's, it's authoritarianism, and he did an executive order. This will tell you a lot. He did the executive order on vaccine mandates, but then asked us to pass a bill ensuring that it would be legal because I don't think the executive order was legal. Now, whether people like them or not, but where I always fall back on that is local control. And I think the value of that is, and, and you know this because you've held local office the most responsive and economical form of government is local control. 
because you are always on the job. I couldn't begin to estimate the number of times that I was in Amarillo. And, and, and a, a point here, my home phone number's always been in the phone book. Whether I was mayor or, or city council, did I get phone calls? Yes. Did I get phone calls at 3 o'clock in the morning? Not many, no, but those folks at that point couldn't compete. Their 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 impulses couldn't compete with the alcohol. <laughs> um, but you're always on duty, and, and you've had the exact same experience eating dinner with your family. Uh, when all you have is boys, you're spending most of your time on table manners and, and deportment. And somebody comes up and says, I want to talk about a pothole or I want to talk about this renovation to a building, or I want to talk about this or that. And that's your job, 24 hours a day. I was lucky because I had a wife and sons who thought it was my job too. And and in that respect, nobody has been more fortunate in terms of, of family than I have. My first son was born uh, 11 weeks into the, the race for, for city council. And they've bought into it, and I think they've been the beneficiaries of it. My kids essentially grew up at City Hall in the, in the Texas Capitol. Would not trade it, I would like to say, because we did all this together. Uh, my wife's traveled every single, every single county in the district multiple times with me, and she wouldn't have it any other way. Quite frankly, she's a better politician than I am. And it's just that's how I feel about local control. And so here's a bill that we passed this time. Once again— this is not a comedy show, but I swear to God, we have a bill now that says the city of Amarillo cannot determine or limit the number of chickens you have in your yard. That is now a state law. Your mayor and city council can do it and do it now. We have since I was, was in office. But what's funny about this bill is if you're going to address it in law, you address roosters. That's the problem. <laughs> Well, speaking of crowing, um, <laughs> the conservative Republicans have really grown in power. I mean, I thought it was getting better over time, and now it's like it's gotten worse. And, uh, you know, the the recent redistricting. I mean, your, your Senate District 31 that went from, how many did you say? It was 37. 37 counties, and it went down from the top of Texas, Panhandle, through Midland, Odessa, and some rural counties, and, and we can talk rural a little bit, too. But now it goes down for the new the new seat will or district will go to almost to Mexico. Almost to Mexico. One county away from Mexico, and it's obviously rigged. <laughs> and they've, they've, they've driven out Bob Duncan, Kip Averett, Bob Duell, others, and now you. There's a lot that needs to be said about redistricting, and I chaired the committee in, in 2011 and spent a lot of time in federal court until 2015, one of the rare opportunities when it comes to public policy. And there's a lot of things that, that people don't understand. It. This district had to grow. I have no problem with that. Every district has to have about 916,000 people in it. When you represent Loving County with 82 people, how are you going to make up that population? Sherman County, a couple thousand people. How are you going to make up that population? I have no problem. To take away things like Gray County and Donna County and Collinsworth, 
I think it was done maliciously at the direction of the lieutenant governor and the chairman and, and was unnecessary. The joke is on them because all they could replace it with were other rural counties. Which are way south. <laughs> which are way south in Schleicher County, Crane County, Upton County, great counties. But here's what the Republicans didn't think of. Those are rural counties. The most important thing in every one of those counties is the school district. And we're going to talk about Republican politics, but those people hate the folks who have opposed me since 2012 because people associated with Texas Public Policy Foundation, as is right now the leading candidate for this seat, board of directors of Texas Public Policy Foundation, they hate public schools and don't like local control. And all of those county judges were going to be on my side. And all those educators, the reason that I won against two Texas Public Policy Foundation candidates, one in the south part of the district, one in the north part of the district, it was designed that way. In 2018, I won without a runoff were because of locally elected officials and educators. And, and families, I always, I always talk about the South Georgia Elementary School, their PTA, I would rather take on Navy SEALs than the South Georgia PTA. <laughs> they, are, they, they are just as, as determined and probably just as deadly. <laughs> but dedicated to those, those children's education, that's why it's, it's one of the big reasons it's such a good elementary school. When we get into that, we become more and more authoritarian as Republicans have built up more power. There's not been a, Democratic, a Democrat elected to a statewide public office since 1994 in this state, we have abused our power because it is absolute. And so we get a lot more into social issues and things like that. As a Republican and as a conservative, my first reaction for a piece of legislation is, is this something that needs to be a state law? And sometimes when the answer is yes, it's not the things that you would expect if, if somebody wants to swap a piece of land for state-owned land in Midland for their planetarium, the only way they can do it is with a bill. Okay, that's a worthwhile piece of, of law, I think. Um, to determine whether, how many chickens you can keep in your backyard, that is not worthy of, of a state law. I'm one of those people, we had a big debate about statues. And, and, and I'm one of those, those Texans. I'm not a bit proud of the Confederacy or the, the Civil War. It almost wiped out a, a generation of Americans for what? And I think those things that the, the, somebody stood up and said vigorously, you can't rewrite history. We don't want to change history. You can't change history. History's already happened. It cannot be altered. It's what happened. We must know it. We must teach it. But we, must, we, we don't need to commemorate it. And so my feeling was that, that local governments, we have one Civil War commemorative statue in a park in Amarillo. I don't care whether it's left or not. I think it is a local decision. And if the city council makes the decision that the people want, they'll get a new city council. The remedy to things that go wrong in cities is really easy. And all those local officials making all those decisions have to, be, have to go to the polls and get reelected. And most of them do get reelected. Uh, but now, the really, really rich people that own Texas Public Policy Foundation are also really, really smart. 
and they they broke the code and they determined we are no longer going to contribute to political candidates. We're going to go buy those offices. And that's what they do. And it's not all just Texas Public Policy Foundation. It's the Cope Foundation and, and things like that. And if you look, one week before the election of 2018, one of my opponents, one who lives in Midland, got $400,000 from Texas Public Policy Foundation. So they sent a bunch of mailers out. Some of them were absolutely lies. Oh, I saved them for a while. Oh, absolutely lies. The, The thing was that between the two of us, we had already bought up most of the media that we could buy in Amarillo, Lubbock for, for Gaines County and Yoakum and things like that and the Permian Basin. And so they sent out a mailer that says Kel, Kel Seliger is, is pro-choice in favor of abortion. Well, that was Texas, Texas right to life, which really has just become another far right group. It's not focused on the abortion question. Texas Alliance for life which just just deals with abortion and women's health, um, endorsed me in the election because I said, Kel Seliger's voting record is a good one, and we agree with it. And, and so when you see something like that, oh, and the Catholic bishops of Texas endorsed the position I took on the particular piece of legislation where they said that I supported death panels in hospitals. Well... Your husband's a doctor, and he will tell you that there is no death panel at either Northwest Texas or Baptist Hospital. It's a myth, and people saying it when they want to lie to voters. And so that's the way things things go. Even in the abortion area, one of the things you never used to do is pass bills that you knew were unconstitutional because state taxpayers are going to have to spend money in court and things like that. The current heartbeat bill in um, in Texas that says that abortion is legal as soon as you hear a heartbeat is a violation of Roe versus Wade and is unconstitutional. Now then, the Supreme Court's going to take up that bill and the Mississippi bill in December, and come spring, they may determine that Roe versus Wade is no longer the law of the land. That's fine. That will be the law, and we will follow it. But doing things that prospectively everybody knew in 2005, when we passed the bill that made uh, homosexual marriage, same-sex marriage, uh, li- illegal, everybody knew that it violated the 14th Amendment. Uh, if there's a vote that I most regret in the Texas legislature, it is that vote. I was a brand-new Republican, and the Republican Party is now the party of litmus tests. You will follow those litmus tests, or you cannot be a real Republican. I reject that. Vote for Republican candidates, help Republicans get elected, and then make them do the things that will get them reelected. I'm fine with that. I, I'm opposed to litmus tests because it allows no diversity of opinion. Diversity of opinion and, and, and the freedom to express and practice those differences are what made the United States the United States. centrists elected I mean I mean they're they're chasing all the moderates Republicans out and redistricting them out you know so it's, it's and and the money 
that they do have to throw at it is a huge challenge. I'm described as the last moderate left in the Texas Senate, and I believe that to be true. What happens is we will squander our great power and our great majority by alienating people. Who do you think actually beat Donald Trump? This rhetorical question is not a test. The truth is probably Republicans. The, he, there was no crossover vote. They didn't have Democrats voting for Donald Trump. And, and, and Republicans didn't vote for Joe Biden. It was Republicans who no longer felt represented by their Republican Party, by the authoritarianism and the divisiveness. And, and here's how far down we've gone as Republicans. A former president endorsing candidates in state legislatures. And calling you a rhino. Called me a rhino. (laughs) Republican in name only. I've been Republican a lot longer than Donald Trump or Dan Patrick. And, 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 And said that I was just like Mitt Romney. I want to make sure to make this very clear. Next to Ronald Reagan and John McCain, the Republican I would most like to be compared with, is Mitt Romney. Well, Donald Trump's a darn dumb. He complimented me while he was endorsing my opponent. What is this? But but we've just become divisive. So here's what's going to happen. The Democrats held the majority in the legislature for 130 years. They did the same thing, became absolutist and, and inflexible and things like that. And they started getting divided in the Democratic Party. In In my mind, it was sort of the John Conley Republicans and the Ralph Yarbrough Republicans, and they become became divided and allow us to elect the first Republicans since Reconstruction when we elected Bill Clements and then opened the door for 1994 when we completely ran out a, a, a Democratic governor and completely took over the state. And then we as Republicans act like there's 130-year cycles. The Democrats got to be in charge for 130 years and we get to be in charge for 130 years. It doesn't work that way. And so when the Democrats get a majority, and they will, because increasingly Houston, Dallas, San Antonio are, are bluer and bluer, then we'll start working toward the middle. It's going to take 10 years for the Democrats to do with some of the really bad stuff that we have done uh, before they can get started on their own agenda. Things like the red light camera bill. Amarillo had red light cameras, only a couple. The people, the mayors who presided at the time, and I think it was Paul Harpole, it came after my time as, as mayor, people sent him back to City Hall. So apparently they didn't object. In Lubbock, people objected. They did away with theirs. The point is, it's a local decision, not a state decision. Eventually that will go away and it will again be a local decision. But, that's, but, but things swing from extreme to extreme. And we are at an extreme now. I, I happen to think that Republican extremes may be better than Democratic extremes, but I don't really ascribe to either. And so that's how things are going to work their way past the middle. So you represented district, Senate District 31, but you also represented the entirety of Texas. What are the challenges facing Texas from your viewpoint? It's to make laws for a state that covers a quarter of a million miles and has 30 million people with a huge diversity that we have. Houston, Texas, or the universe, Houston, Texas is one of the most diverse cities in, in, in the United States. And we have to address all that diversity and the tremendous costs, not just of educating the public, but, but health care, which is 30% of our budget. And, and how do we do that? Um, how do we keep up with, 
with the mental health problems that we have in Texas. We need probably a couple thousand more state hospital beds. Include the community-based stuff and just counseling facilities and things like that. We need another 200, 300 beds in, in West Texas. The only state hospital is in Big Spring. They do a really nice job. They're adding hundreds and hundreds of beds in Houston, uh, completely rebuilding the state hospital in Austin. We need to do that all over the state. Uh, they have more crazy people down there than we have here, but we still need those beds. <laughs> uh, they just have more people down there. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, transportation is always an issue. We give it, make no mistake. We put billions and billions of dollars into TxDOT, and they do a lot of good with it. We build good highways here and stuff, but it's a quarter of a million mi- square miles. And we need to do so much more. We do need to do so much more and keep TxDOT from looking at this as I-35 corridor, which is really the state of Texas and everybody else needs farm to market road. It is not true. When TxDOT first targeted the loop around Amarillo, it was 1959. And as I have pointed out, that's roughly on the same construction schedule as the Great Wall of China, which was built with manual labor. <laughs> and TxDOT's got to do better. Right now, they're well-led, I think. I think they're doing a better job, and they're trying to do a better job. But John Smithy and Ford Price and Ken King and I are constantly reminding them that talking about projects is not the same thing as doing projects. 14 years it took to do the overpass well, actually an underpass in Dalhart that wouldn't accommodate big bales of cotton and and things like that. Oh, that was a mess, yeah. We were in committee when I was on the, the finance committee and said, what is the excuse for a 14-year delay? They wouldn't delay, take a priority project in Dallas, Houston, Austin, or San Antonio. They would only delay it by the time it took to lay concrete. What's the problem? And I give the chairman of finance a lot of credit for that time. He said, said obviously, I wasn't aware of it. I'm from Houston, but TxDOT will start on the Dalhart project immediately. It's now been done. They need to do something about this loop because they can't keep me from saying that I call it the fruit loop. (laughs) So the needs of rural communities, talk about those a little compared to the urban. They exist to a very large extent like every other problem in the state of Texas. When you talk about health care, look at the tremendous challenges of health care in rural areas. At one point, somebody thought we could save some money by, by limiting or doing away with rural EMS, emergency medical services. Uh, most of my exposure are places like Claude, and, and they have a clinic over there that's very well run, and they do a good job. But in a lot of places, if we didn't have rural EMS, we would have no health care. You know, the people who were badly injured or died would simply die. Well, I guess for some people that's the solution to the problem. Not to me it is. And we need EMS. And, and you look at how tough it is to run a rural hospital. And, and quite frankly, we're part of the problem, Annette, because people all around, uh, around here, when somebody gets really sick or hurt, come damn wrong. They come to Amarillo for surgical procedures, which is really where the big money is. Think of what the challenge is then to run really nice hospitals in places like uh, Borger and Hereford, Pampa, Dalhart, Dumas, Stanford. The residents need health care 
just as badly as, as you and I do, but their access is more limited. How can we increase their access? And what about poor people? And, and, and here's something people in Amarillo should be really, really proud of. Heal the City is a, a program. It has religious underpinnings, as it, as it should, and they're providing more and more health services absolutely free. Yeah. Alan's doing a great job. Alan Keister. Yeah, you know, I was going to say Alan Keister. He he really he he won't advertise, but I will. It was simply a vision of one Amarillo doctor who has maybe the busiest medical practice in town and gives tremendous amount of time to heal the city. And and for people who are there, they go in. Everything's free. Everything is free, and it's people who otherwise would not have health care, would get sicker and die. I give the people at Texas Tech Health Sciences Center a, a lot of credit because down in Lubbock, they, they do very much the same thing. Because of Texas Tech and the way it looks, at least one day a week, they have faculty at Texas Tech Medical School go to this place with nursing students, uh, social work students, pharmacy students, and it's come one, come all, absolutely free and they have equipment and pharmaceuticals donated by the manufacturers and if you want to know the truth those are two of the only programs there's others around the state those are the two that i know of that are really making difference in the cost of health care because let's be really honest health care companies and facilities don't want to reduce the cost that the people pay because they make less money we have very, very good hospitals that really don't want to reduce the costs that are passed on to the, the, the patients a bit. And I think that's wrong, and we're going to have we're going to rethink healthcare in this country. It's not going to be the British model, whether it's state-owned, but it's going to there's a reason that people in the United States pay more for the exact same pharmaceuticals than anybody else in the world. Why is that? And it's something that needs to be fixed. Do we want our healthcare system to be a robust one? And it's made more robust by the money in it? Absolutely. But does it have to cost the patient everything it costs? No, I don't think it does. Um, and so we're, that, that's the biggest rural problem. Transportation, obviously. we got to have places nobody anticipated in far west Texas. The, the tremendous boom in the oil field brought around by, by horizontal drilling and then the sand mining, which makes fracking possible, and hundreds of additional trucks that that requires in far west Texas on two-lane highways. So we've made a big advance and put everybody wants a four-lane highway. Everybody would like to have an interstate that goes from Pampa, Canadian. That's not going to happen, but they need adequate transportation. So the Super 2 has come along. Between Amarillo and Borger, where every few miles there are passing lanes where it becomes a three-lane highway, it's a great innovation. Everybody wants four lanes, but it's made a big difference. Uh, we still have things in the Permian Basin, access roads to an interstate that go both ways, two ways, absolute death trap. They need to be fixed, and they need to be fixed now. Yeah, the roads down there, and you've been on them a lot more than I have, are pretty rough. Been all over them, and TxDOT... When they get started on a project, do a great job. So do you think the 87th legislature focused on the issues it needed to? A lot of them, yes. 
broadband is a big one. This is the information age. Everybody ought to have access to information. It shouldn't be a disability because you live in Dalhart. But in places like Loving County, they don't even get decent 4G, much less 5G or, or broadband. And people will tell you, well, there are places in Dallas where they don't have adequate broadband. Oh, for crying out loud, they can get it in a heartbeat because it's part of the biggest part is AT&T, but Verizon and those people. Broadband makes a big deal. Here's, a, here's something good COVID did for us. And you haven't heard COVID good stories yet. They made us realize how ill-prepared we are to find our ways digitally. First in schools, but we're seeing this in telehealth services. And, and the things that, that, that your doctor in Amarillo needs to be able to see if you live in, in take your pick, if you live in Toya, what can be done digitally? Certainly a lot of the scanning and stuff that, that needs to be done. Um, you, and, and your husband's a good example that if he gets a well-done image, if he has the proper amount of broadband, he can read an X-ray from from Nigeria as well as he can read an X-ray taken over on Wallace Boulevard. If we have those adequate digital capabilities, and I think that's particularly important. We're putting a lot of money into broadband, and those of us who live in rural areas say it's going to happen in the urban areas if we do nothing. In the rural areas, we have to do a lot. What about the infrastructure for heating and air conditioning in February? <laughs> Let's understand something about, about what people call snowmageddon. First of all, in Amarillo, we had one two-hour rolling blackout because we are on a grid that is interstate. Right. The Southwest and I, Power Pool. In fact, I just interviewed David Hudson for. I know you did. Yeah, so. And and they had a couple of coal plants that they fired up that were, had not been operating. Coal plants are going to completely go away, but but we had a couple, and so we did pretty well. I had one gentleman call me in in uh, Midland, where the gas originates, and his power was out for twenty one days. So let's talk about what did and did not happen. First of all. In the Texas Panhandle, we get cold weather every winter. We get snow almost every winter. We're prepared for it. Now then, were we perfectly prepared for 11 degrees below zero? No. <laughs> it was chilly. <laughs> Do we see 20 degrees all the time in the winter? Yes. And you talk about the law that says you have to winterize power plants. Well, a lot of that has to do with sheltering and, sheltering and coverage and in South Texas in the summer, you can't go and put these big enclosures over your power plants because they generate so much heat. It's a problem. The oil and gas people, people complain about the natural gas business did just fine. They were producing gas. The problem was they assumed that they were considered an essential industry because they are an essential industry, but they didn't have that official designation and so the grid operator called the Energy Reliability Council of Texas moved, moved electricity away from some of those gas-producing and conducting industries. It wasn't their fault because they weren't considered essential, and you and I know they are essential. The grid worked fine. 
It did exactly what it was designed to do. And so we got all upset with the grid and, and they did some horrible things. They overcharged people, but the grid worked fine. There wasn't enough electricity in the grid. There is not enough electricity generated, particularly in that area. And so what they said was, people would say, well, we have 25,000 megawatts of, of power. But that included five to 10,000 or 10 megawatts of wind power. Wind energy was not the problem in February. It was also not the solution. Because if it's 11 degrees below zero and the wind's not blowing, you have zero energy. And if the sun's not shining, you have zero solar energy. And when those blades ice up, they are inefficient and you don't get any energy from them. And that's nobody's fault. And so the real challenge, maybe our Manhattan project, is how to store that energy for as long as 72 hours. So that when there is no wind, we still have energy for wind resources, just like we always have energy for things like the plants in Amarillo that run on natural gas. So how do we do that? And all of the generators are saying, yeah, we'll put in a lot more generation as long as the state will send us a lot of money. Warren Buffett said, send us $8.3 billion and we'll, get, we'll see to it that you have peaking. We'll build a number of power plants that will operate 14 days a year and that's all for $8.3 billion. I think the state may have to provide an incentive, but we have to be very, very careful, I think, judicious and economical about just what that incentive is going to be. Sending $8.3 billion to Omaha, I don't think is. Well, let's bring it back to education a little bit um, because that's my name of my podcast mm -hmm. and you've been such a supporter. So we had a really positive uh session in 2019 for K-12, mm -hmm. but not so much this past session. In legislation, things go in cycles is what priorities are. And, and, and when you say priorities, it's always what drives the budget. School districts, if they weren't getting state money, wouldn't say boo to us, which I think would be a mistake, but, but they wouldn't. Um, and, and so we've done so much going back to House Bill 5, and, and, and Senate Bill 1 in 1999 made some mistakes, but did a lot of good things. So we shift our priorities. Right now, our priority is the border, which is really, really, really important. But the problem, it's one of our priorities is because the federal government's not doing their job. And we keep electing people who don't do their job on the, the border. And, and that's a problem. And we have problems with criminal justice, with 57, 58,000 people behind bars. And the courts may make us air-condition all those prisons. And so it's a question of shifting priorities. And, and, and education is a priority more often than any other single issue because of the $40, $50 billion a year that we spend and the problems we have where the state of Texas probably needs to take over the entire Houston Independent School District for a period of time because their locally elected board is not doing the job that they were elected for and they're using state monies not to do the job. At the same time, you have school districts like 
uh, far San Juan Alamo down on the border in the Rio Grande Valley, one of the poorest school districts in the state of Texas, and does one of the best jobs educationally. Um, uh, and, and, and right here in, in Amarillo, Doug Loomis, who's a superintendent, has all kinds of challenges. We have to have a nursery in every single high school in Amarillo, mainly because neither families nor schools are doing everything they can to, from, from an educational point of view, to talk about unwanted pregnancies. And it costs us a fortune. Um, you know, issue, issues like that, and then we limit the degree to which a local school board can, can raise money. Single biggest pe- concern people have, probably, if you distill it down, are the taxes they pay because nobody trusts the way any governmental entity spends taxes, and yet they elect them and reelect them. Mostly incumbents will be reelected this next year. What's funny about taxes is, and this is going to be a real revelation to a lot of your listeners, it's a revelation every time I point it out, and, and, and Jenna Dowdy, who's sitting here with us and runs my Amarillo office, will tell you because I'll talk about this in public. And people get this shocked look on their face when I tell them, you don't have to pay any property taxes. You don't have to pay a nickel. And people are going, well, why am I? Because nobody has run for office locally or statewide who said, well, statewide we have, that we're going to do away with property taxes or cut your property taxes in half. The reason they don't is because think of what the police service would look like in Amarillo with no local property taxes. What do you think the state of Texas is going to provide Amarillo in the way of police officers and training? Pretty close to zip. The same is true of the fire department and things like that. And so people are going to complain about taxes and reelect the same people who set their tax rate. Not that that's a bad idea. Um, I We never increased property taxes while I was mayor. But we didn't cut them in half. We did reduce them 20%, which nobody else in Texas had done. But we didn't cut them in half. Uh, and, and people expect the maximum amount of service from every governmental entity. They would also like to pay nothing for them. We can't do that. And so we have to, to, to find some medium. Quite frankly, we have found that medium in the fact that people generally reelect incumbents. But you cannot name, and I cannot name, a local election anywhere in the state of Texas where the candidate said, I'm going to cut taxes in half because they could do it. I think it probably in a school district it would have to be in the annual budget. In a city, they can do it with two meetings. Two meetings. Don't even have to be held in subsequent weeks. But people don't do it because the people of this city and every other city expect a certain amount of, of service, which was which relates, we passed a bill that said that cities cannot cut their police departments. Well, for crying out loud, nobody wanted to or intended to defund their police. The fact that they talk about it in Austin, for the rest of us in the state to take it seriously is ridiculous. Keep in mind, this is a city that said, yes, homeless people should come from near and far and camp on our city streets. And so they did. It was ridiculous. 
And is Austin going to spend much money on, on police services? No. They may spend more of it on things like mental health treatment, things like that, which is where homelessness comes from, drug abuse and, and mental health issues. But were they going to defund their police? No. It's an issue for the taxpayers of Austin, not the state of Texas. But, and this is what we talked about, about Republicans in power, because we've passed so many laws, we're having to search for things to do. And so running city and county government is our new mission. Well, when you know county judges like I do, uh, whether it be Christy Dyer or Nancy Tanner or Trey Ellis down in Parmer County, they're about as smart as anybody in the legislature. They don't need our help. If they do, they'll ask for it, and they'll ask for it in a form that we can deliver. Generally tends to be financial, but not always. And, and like a bill that I had that said that if, if a judge in one county can order a blood test for somebody who's in the city limits or an adjoining county, and think what this means. Odessa is partly in Midland County. If a ticket is given in Odessa but in Midland County, the extra county judge cannot order a blood test for somebody who's killed a busload full of kids in an auto accident. It's just a bad situation. It can be fixed in law. We fixed it in law, but it also happened up in Dalhart, where one county judge could leave town because the county judge in either Dallas or Hartley County could issue that kind of order. And so we do some things to help local government. They didn't ask for any money. They just asked for the ability to do their jobs as effectively and efficiently as people expect them to do it. Kel, you ran for the Senate first in 2004. So you've served a total so far of 17 years, right. and it will be 19 by the wow. time you, you leave office, and you're still our representative, uh, Senate representative. Um, what else would you like to say to the listeners? Go vote. <laughs> I don't give long speeches. <laughs> People call my office all the time. And, and they tell Jenna and, and Shannon, we'd like Kel to come and speak at lunch and speak for 30 minutes. And their general answer is, that's not going to happen. We'll give you 15 to 20 minutes and some questions, and, and, and that's it. Uh, the answer is, go vote. I tell people this all the time. Once again, you ought to look at the expression on people's face when I say we have exactly the government we deserve. And quite frankly, you and I both know a lot of the citizens who live in this area deserve better government. But who you vote for or who you don't vote for, or if you don't vote, that's the government you have. That's how, with the exception of Germany in the 1930s, uh, that's how you get extremes. Because extremists always vote. They always vote. And so, but this is really funny about Texas Public Policy Foundation, which, by the way, I think is the work of the devil and has been terrible for the state of Texas and don't mind telling you. And the people who own it live right here in, in, in the district. Their candidate, whose name is Mr. Sparks, is traveling all around the district. And you know what it's telling people? Really, he's not much associated with TPPF. He's trying to put distance between him and this horrible organization because he realizes it's a liability to people who demand good public schools and who believe local control is one of the, 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 the cornerstones of good and responsive government. That's really interesting. It, it is interesting, I think. 
And he'll be up here saying exactly that. Kel, wow. Thank you. That was a long conversation for you then. So. <laughs> this has been a marathon for, for me, and now I, I have to go take a nap. And <laughs> I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. I appreciate the opportunity to think about talk about things that have mattered to me for 17 years because they matter to the people who live in this district for 17 years and, and a lot longer than that. And it comes from a I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of being the product of Texas public schools. It's, it's, to me, it's, it's almost the new evangelism that um, the people who are going to lead this state in the future are in classrooms all over the state of Texas right now as we sit here. And it's, it's been, it's been my passion for quite some time yeah, now. So I know it has. It's that great. important. Yeah, it is. I have often said that whatever the problems, this is not absolutely and strictly true, but it's largely true be it a state, a county, or a community, the way that you solve your problems is you educate your way out of those problems. And for that, you've got to have access to those kids, and the kids have to have access to their education. Thank you. Thank you for your service and your continued service. And tell Nancy hi. I will. And thank you for being on my podcast. Oh, and my new granddaughter. I need to tell. Oh, yes. She won't know what we're saying, but I know you mean to tell her hi. Yes, and Collins. Collins. Collins, It's yes. her name. And uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, Collins hopefully will be in these public schools someday and be the future of Texas years from now. My kids were educated in Amarillo Public Schools and so far have, have been, I think, successful and well-adjusted. And uh, uh, I, we owe a great deal to the public schools. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Annette on Education. Thanks again, Kel.